If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to teach us from your word. We pray that you would broaden our understanding of life, of the world, as well as broaden and deepen our understanding of you, of your truth, of your ways. We thank you, Father, for preserving your word for us, that we may have understanding and that we may have knowledge. And so we are so grateful. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they des desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. I want to begin with this question. The question is, why? Why do we have to go over these verses, some of them again? What is the point? I think we've gotten it. Why are we doing this? Well, here's the reason. The Word of God shapes our understanding of so many things, and what is important here is a foundation that is being laid in a way that is laid throughout the Bible. Let me kind of give you an explanation of what I mean by that. In our society, we're facing a lot of different issues, a lot of things that are, that are problematic, things that bother us. And some of those cultural or social things, you know, there's the big um, uh, transgender and all the things that go with that. There's what people are saying, well, people are going through these things because they have body dysphoria, you know, they don't, they're not happy with their bodies. Those of us who struggle with weight aren't happy with our bodies either. But anyway, there's that going on. There's, there's been the question of homosexuality and what all that means and what that should look like and how accepting we should be of it. Um, there's, uh, uh, you know, people talking about all these different genders and it, it affects politicians and the way laws are, written, are being written and it affects what, businesses are doing with their bathrooms and their policies and hiring policies and it just goes on and on and so for the christian you know we want to approach these things in a biblical way and christians do so in a lot of different ways but when it comes to thinking biblically we have to understand that the bible sometimes may not directly say something and yet it is directly applicable to what we are going through and how we should be thinking. So there's not a verse in the Bible that says that there is no such thing really as body dysphoria, or there's the Bible doesn't say in a verse that there's no such thing as you know transgenderism. That's not there. But the Bible, from beginning in the very beginning, from Genesis all the way through, continues to shape our paradigm or our understanding, the lens that we use to understand the world the way the world should be as well as what's gone wrong with the world. 
Simple examples would be this. We know from the book of Genesis, and if you read a lot of books dealing with the, some of the controversies in today's society, there are those who point to this. They'll go to the book of Genesis and they'll say that God in the beginning created male and female, that these are the distinctions that God has made, that God has fixed both sex or biological sex and gender together, and that then throughout the Bible, that's all you have, and that it is a God thing. It's got nothing to do with psychology, nothing to do with science, even though science and all those things kind of back this up until it becomes politicized. It makes it clear that the assumption that we should have, that God's design is that there's male and female. The Bible talks about sex and that he wants people to have and be engaged in sexual activity. But he's given the parameters for that. That is to be in marriage between a man and a woman. So then everything outside of that is always viewed as sinful, as harmful, as rebellious. Whether we think it is or not is immaterial. That's, what, that's the standard that God has set. So that then shapes our paradigm of the way we look at society and how we understand things, how we understand the problems that people are having and why they're having the problems they're having. The, the reason why we approach then marriage as being between a man and a woman is not because of traditions, because that's what God has laid out. It always goes back to, to that. Uh, and so when it comes to the roles of men and women, which is always, not always, but it's been a sensitive topic in our overly sensitive society now for 30 years or 40 years. You know, people get all freaked out about, you know, when we start talking about what men should do and what women should do, what men shouldn't do, and what women shouldn't do. And there's, there are statements people make in those discussions that are kind of dumb. But when it comes to our general understanding of these issues, it is shaped by what the Bible says, period. When it comes to that whole issue that people sometimes don't want to talk about of, you know, women submitting to men, you know, you hear sermons and pastors will talk about, well, you know, psychologically men uh, are made to be dominant because of testosterone and women are made to be more submissive and, and all this kind of stuff. Well, and that may be true. It doesn't really matter because God is the one who's defined the roles. So we should believe in the roles because it's what God has said, Period. Because what psychology has, they keeps changing. It makes me wonder what kind of science it is. I don't think it's a science, but anyway, that, that's what happens. So when it comes to what we're looking at here, this is part of that genre where you have where scripture is assuming certain things. And when you and I make assumptions, we can always be wrong. But when we clearly see what assumptions are in the scriptures, it's always correct because it comes from God. So our understanding, our better understanding of what he's getting into and what he's saying and why he's saying the way he's saying these things helps us to further solidify and shape our paradigm or the lens that we use to be able to understand and evaluate the culture that we live in, in today's society. Because sometimes an individual looks at this and they say, well, you know, I just, you know, me, I don't know if Paul, he doesn't like women, I don't know what his deal is. I don't know why he's saying this, but this is clearly outmolded. We don't, we don't, you know, it's, it's outdated. We don't need this. We need to move on. And, um, and I always wonder why are we so quick to dismiss the Bible or dismiss the parts that we don't like? That kind of goes back to the 1970s. It's not the only time this has happened when there were discussions in, within Christianity and the discussions were about whether or not the Bible was inerrant, whether or not the Bible was inspired. 
And people even said things like, well, when I read the Bible, the parts that inspire me are inspired and the parts that aren't, aren't. Then there are those who say, well, when the Bible speaks on spiritual things, it's inerrant, meaning it contains no error. And they're always trying to find ways to, you know, find the loopholes or create loopholes to get away from things that maybe made them uncomfortable when it came to various issues that society was facing then or even to this day. And then those who went back and clearly made the statement that, nope, the Bible is without error, period. Our job and responsibility is to understand what it says. Our job and responsibility as Christians is to submit to what it says. It doesn't matter what culture says. We always should be evaluating culture based on what the scripture says. We don't evaluate the scripture based on what culture says. So the understanding then of details and the way that things are written is, is supposed to be very helpful to us in many ways, it's not limited then to only dealing with the issue of tongues or how we are to do things in worship. Again, a better understanding of what he says about that, it helps us then to understand in, at times what's behind it. Why is this being said? How does this, again, shape my opinion that I'm going to have or the convictions I'm going to have about these things? So then when the Christian says, Based on what the scripture declares, even though you can't find a Bible verse that says that, I believe that the Bible does make it clear that there is no such thing as transgenderism. It's made up. It doesn't exist. When people say, well, but gender is separate and different from biological sex or what have you, that's incorrect. It's not, that's not what the Bible says. And people try to point and say, well, you know, there's individuals who have, you know, they're born and, and it's not quite clear what they are because of, you know, there's some deformities uh, in their body physically. That does happen. Absolutely. Unbelievably rare. That doesn't make the case for anyone who's healthy. It's a unique thing all by itself with definite problems. Absolutely. Now, this doesn't mean then as, as our paradigm is shaped that we have a bad attitude or think other people are just stupid. That's not correct. Remember, the world is blinded by their sin. They're blinded by that. The Bible makes it clear that sin, that part of the curse of sin is it affects our ability to think. Now, it doesn't make us dumb all of a sudden, but there are things that can greatly influence our thinking that we ought to be able to discipline out. Like sometimes we're able to talk about issues and, and not allow a political view to, to determine the way that that conversation goes. It's becoming much more difficult, but we should be able to do that. But, but politics and social issues and attitudes greatly affect not only what we talk about, but the way we talk about or if we talk about things. So... As we approach the scripture then, and as we go through these details, I do think that it's important that we look at everything that's being said and seek to understand why, and then along with that, as always, we should be submitting to what the scripture says. So basically, in this section, I believe that Paul, in the worship service, wants the married women to be quiet. And now he's not saying that in a negative way. He's not trying to be persnickety. 
He's not, he, he, there's nothing in here that says they should be quiet because they're dumb. That's not what he's getting at. This church was, was a chaotic mess. And besides being a chaotic mess, apparently when they were worshiping the Lord on Sundays, it was loud. And there was a lot of confusion. And so he's giving them these rules to kind of, kind of rein everything in. He, he clearly, when you go back all the way to chapter 11 and move forward, he allowed women to participate in worship. They had to be properly adorned. There were reasons for that because of what was going on in the society around them. But here he is saying that their silence would express their subordinate, which again is not inferior, uh, but their subordinate relationship to the husbands. Uh, sometimes we just that sentence alone sounds to us to be negative because we're so greatly influenced by our society. Um, and of course, he's contrasting this with a disturbance that would have been caused by their talking to their husbands during the service. So Paul here, what he's saying is consistent with what he said in other places. So turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now we'll stop there. Again, Paul makes this statement. Some people don't like it. It doesn't really matter what we like or don't like when it comes to Scripture. The bottom line is, is he is an apostle. He lays the foundation for the church. He doesn't say that women can't teach at all. He's just saying they can't teach or have authority over men. Has nothing to do with intelligence. Has nothing to do with gifting. Nothing. This is the pattern. This is what God desires. So we just submit to it. That's it. It's not demeaning. It's only demeaning if we pretend that it is. Or accept that it is. And some have tried to say that, well, when Paul says this, it's all for cultural reasons. Really? Well, look at verse 13. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Uh-oh. That's not cultural. That's historical and theological. Paul goes back to Genesis, to the fall, and says, this is the reason. So the reason is, now I don't know if that didn't happen, if women could teach men in church. I don't know if that would have changed or not. All I know is, is Paul goes back and says, Here's the order. God made man first, then he made the woman, and when it came to the fall, the woman, the woman was deceived. Right? We know that Adam sinned, but he wasn't deceived into sin, which actually makes it worse for him, because uh, it means he just plain did it with full understanding. Uh, but Adam was not deceived, the woman was, and she became a transgressor. Then, just so you know, most would rank the next verse as either the most difficult or one of the two most difficult verses in the whole New Testament to understand. Yet she will be saved, talk about the woman, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so we look at that verse and say, what in the world does that mean? Well, it says they will be kept safe or saved through childbearing or childbirth and from the various things I've read, there's seven or eight different translations or interpretations of what this could mean. I'll give you the top four because the others are just kind of variations of these. There are those who believe that when it says that 
when she will be saved through childbearing or saved through childbirth. They, they, they believe that it means that she will pre be preserved physically through the difficult process and the dangerous process of childbirth. So basically they're eliminating all the, the, I guess you would say, spiritual truths that could be there. It just says, oh, all this means is, is that she'll be physically saved when she's giving, when she's giving birth. The second one is, is that she'll be preserved from insignificance by means of her role in the family. <coughs> Thirdly, there are those who believe that, well, she is saved, and that's, again, women in general, uh, or womankind, is saved through the ultimate childbirth of Jesus Christ the Savior. And they'll say that's an indirect reference to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then lastly, there are those who believe that she will be kept from the corruption of society by being at home and raising children. So out of those four, I do believe one of those is correct. Uh, the interpretation of the verse it then is clouded because at the end of it, it says, if the mothers continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, that's the clause. If they do these things, then this will be enacted, whatever, whatever this salvation is or whatever this saving is or preserving is. So whatever, however you understand the first part of the verse will be affirming, it's contingent on the woman's willingness to abide in these virtues. So I believe that it is basically number two that the woman will be saved from insignificance by means of her role in the family. In other words, uh, a woman will find her greatest satisfaction and meaning in life, not in seeking the male role, but in fulfilling God's design for her as a wife and mother with faith, love, holiness, and self-control. That goes back to the curse. Remember, you go back to the curse. When God is talking to the woman and when he's talking to the man, what does he tell her? He tells her that... Um, she will have pain and agony when she gives birth and then tells her along with that that her husband's going to rule over here, or rule over her. And when you go and you study all of that, the idea of the, of the curse is, is that the woman's desire shall be for her husband. And I've heard all kinds of things. I heard a guy once preach that what that means is that women will never find fulfillment in life until they find a man and they live their life through him. That's not what that says, just so you know. All right? When it says your desire shall be for him, the word there, remember this is part of a curse. Your desire is you're going to want to control him. You're going to want to control him. Then it says, but he shall rule over you. That's also part of the curse. That's not a positive thing. And the word for rule there is a word that means to crush under your thumb. So that's where a majority of conflict come between husband and wives in marriage and women and men uh, in, in the culture is men wanting to dominate and, and squash the woman and the woman trying to take on the male role and dominate the man. And so there's this conflict. It's only going to be resolved through Christ. But that's what's going to happen. That, and so that's, that's what he's talking about there. And so here, this is the remedy to all of this as he begins to, to open this up to those that he's writing to. Now, John MacArthur does a pretty good job in kind of explaining this. I, I think that he's really close uh, to being really accurate on what, he's, on what he's doing here. He begins with some questions. He says, when you look at this verse where it says, all women are saved through childbearing, well, we have to ask, in what way? What kind of saved is even being meant here? Because it can't be saved from sin, 
But the word saved can mean delivered. It can mean preserved. It can be saved from other things other than sin. So what we have to understand is what are all women being delivered from? All women are being delivered from the stigma of having caused the fall by the race of childbearing. So what he's getting at goes back to the fall. Remember that what we understand theologically is that whenever we talk about the fall, we always call the sin that we have as the sin of who? The sin of Adam. Even though we know the story in Genesis, technically who sinned first? Well, Eve did. But again, as Paul has already pointed out, she was deceived. It appears that Adam was there. He knew the truth. He didn't say nothing. Little wimp. And so because he didn't say anything, he didn't protect his wife. And he just, you know, she said, we're here. And so he went ahead and ate. And, you know, then we know that when the Lord shows up, the first thing he does is blame the woman. And technically, I think he blames the woman and God. He says, the woman you gave me. You, know, you notice that the Lord just ignored all that? You know that smoke screen of blaming others? He doesn't even get into the argument. Because it just doesn't hold any water. He just holds that individual responsible for what they did. And that's how he deals with it. So basically, when you look at it historically, and you're looking at it, I guess you would say, chronologically, in, in detailed chronological order, women led in the fall, but by the grace of God, they are released from that stigma through childbearing. What's the point? Well, they may have caused the race to fall by stepping out of their God-intended design, but they also are given the priority responsibility of raising a godly seed. Right? That's, a, that's a priority responsibility that God has given to, to women. That's the balance. So he's clearly not talking about salvation here. It can't be right. That can't be it. I believe it has to be number two. It's not spiritual birth, but women are, are delivered from being left as a second-class stigmatized, uh, in a second-class permanently stigmatized situation for the violation that took place in the garden. They are delivered from being thought of as permanently weak and deceivable and insubordinate. So the idea here then is that in, in the balance of things, women led the race into sin, but God has given them the privilege of leading the race out of sin to godliness. Now we do know, we have to say this because, you know, we live in a very uh, sensitive age, that doesn't mean that God wants all women to be mothers. Some of them, God doesn't even want them to be married. Some women cannot have children for different reasons. There are those who have the gift of singleness. Uh, God allows those that are barren to be barren for his own purposes. But as a general rule, just like marriage in general, is, which was called the grace of life, Peter says that motherhood in general is that which reverses the stigma of the woman and allows them to provide for society the rearing of a godly seed, which again, in a real sense, reverses the curse for which she was so responsible. It is interesting, if you read historical books and articles uh, of various feminist movements and whatnot, there seems to be this overwhelming desire to demean what a lady does in her home. That used to be viewed that running your household, so to speak, and raising your children, everybody viewed that as being something that was honorable. Everyone viewed that as being something that was really hard to do. Requires an innumerable number of skills. Still does, by the way. And there's all these ladies, what, what do they say? Even if you watch some commercial, 
do you really want fulfillment? But what is that assuming? That you're not fulfilled. Do you really want to have an impact on society? Because raising your kids apparently isn't. That is untrue. And then when people began to write books, Christians, about the, the, the importance of the role of the mother, really what, what, how a society is developed by what the mom does with their kid, people say, ah, oh, that's just a bunch of Christians, you know, that's a bunch of hooey, and just really trying to put it down. And, and the world, they've been kind of successful. A lot of people think that uh, and think in those terms. But we need to go back, what does the Bible say? Remember, the Bible is not some old, archaic book. It is old. But it's not archaic. It's not out of date. God's revelation is for all people for all time. It transcends culture and it transcends time. It would, what, what we know to be saying now is exactly what it said 500 years ago and what it said 1,000 years ago. There's a consistency with that. When, when, you know, it's interesting. If you look at, at commentaries, what we would call good commentaries, if you read a good solid commentary that was published in in let's say 2020, you'll find that if you look at a good commentary that was, that was uh, published in 1820, they're pretty much the same. And the illustrations are a little different, and maybe one deals more with the Greek language than the other one does, but they're both interpreting this, this passage the exact same way. And if you go back then to an older one from maybe 1520, all right, so now we're 500 years, it's the same thing. Said a little different way, they were dealing with different issues, so the applications might be a little different, but the meaning of the text, it's the same. And so, truth remains unaltered. So, yes, the Bible is old, which makes it miraculous that it's just as relevant today as it's always been. Just to make sure that we are the ones who are broadening our understanding of all that it is, and the incredible gift that God has given us. One pastor said this, he says, when it comes to all of this, we're led by men in the worship of the church. They pray, they preach, they teach, they give leadership to the church. But the perfect balance of that is the influence of godly women that raise that godly generation. And the only way that will happen is if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And when you look through history, normally, this is the norm. At the great, if we look at the great men, the great preachers, the great missionaries, the great theologians of, of, of throughout all the years, a majority of them had, had mothers that were strong in the faith. It's, abso it's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Augustine, who's considered one of the, the first of all the church fathers, I don't know where his dad was spiritually, but his mom was a Christian. And she prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him. He didn't get saved till he was 35. He was a scoundrel. She just would not stop. She was unrelenting. And he was one of those early church fathers that his writings had tremendous influence on the church for hundreds and hundreds of years, even to this day. So when we say that, we're not just pretending that the role of the woman is important. That's not, we're not pretending. We're not just, it's not a puff piece, so to speak. It's, it's a very real thing. It's part of the fabric of, of, our, of our homes and, and families and that kind of thing. Remember that they have to be the kind of woman that's described here uh, so this woman who is, uh, continues in faith and love and holiness is unlike the woman that was described earlier in this passage. In other words, they're not into clothes, they're not in the outward flaunting of sexuality and desire uh, and, the, and the wanting of wealth or the showing of wealth. They're women whose hearts are marked by godly fear, self-control. And so we see this role of women that is, that is in the scripture. 
it, it's not declared. There's no Bible verse that says women must stay at home and, and you know, just raise the kids. But when you read through all the scripture, we see this come to light and see the importance that is placed on their role. Everyone has a role, and those roles are important. It's like any team sport. No matter how great certain athletes are in certain sports, those great athletes are unable to win championships until certain other people join the team. They may not be superstars like them, they normally aren't, but they are a piece of the puzzle and they do certain things really, really well to make the whole thing work. And so it's an amazing thing to see that in sports or to see that in certain companies where certain companies just really take off when certain individuals get together and, 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 their, and their gifts or their abilities kind of, you know, they, they, they're synergistically working together and create uh, something that is very profound and important. So when Paul says all these things, and he goes through all these rules in 1 Corinthians 14, he wants these believers to understand that they should not think of themselves as being exclusive or independent interpreters or recipients of the word of God. They are a congregation like all the other congregations, and they are submit to God's truth by conforming to his standard of conduct. That's it. That, that's what he wants them to know. With everything that Paul has said about spiritual gifts, and in particular tongues and prophecies and worship, they might want to argue. Who does Paul think he is? Besides, I know what I feel or I know what I've experienced. And I believe that Paul anticipates that and he takes a very proactive stand. So look at verse 36 of 1 Corinthians 14. He asked these rhetorical questions to make a point. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Well, the answer is no, the word of God didn't come from them. Or are you the only ones it has reached? Well, the answer would be no. Then he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet, or if anyone thinks that he is spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord, which is a very strong way to say what he's saying. He's not saying these are really great suggestions, and I think that you should really put this at the top of your list. He's not saying that this needs to be the most influential suggestions that I've made to you. He says this is the command of God. This is what God, so then to go against what Paul says is to go against what God says, period. It's the same principle we say when, you know, when you, if, when you talk to kids and you talk to kids about obeying their parents, it's a true statement that to disobey your parents is to disobey God. There's no exaggeration there. That's truth. God has placed the parent in authority over their kids. Responsibility as well, but absolutely they are the authority. And so to, to, to disobey them is to disobey God. To dishonor them is to dishonor God. And most of us know that. Most of the time, many individuals, when they become adults, you know, they don't want to do things that will, what, dishonor their parents, even though they're not even living at home anymore. Why? Because they love their parents and they honor their parents. That's where they, God has designed it. When you look at verse 38, we'll spend our, our last moments on this. In the, in the English Standard Version, it says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Some translations say, if anyone is ignorant, let him remain ignorant. Um, it's, it's difficult to, um, it's not really clear cut uh, to just state dogmatically what it is, but as you, as you read through the context and the definitions of the words and try to put all these things together, he's basically saying that if anyone, if anyone is ignorant, meaning if, they, if they're going to remain willfully ignorant, it's kind of really what he's getting at. If they're trying to ignore what's being said, 
then they're going to be unrecognized. And what he means by being unrecognized is that they won't be recognized as either possessing the true gift or they won't be recognized as knowing the truth or having the truth. Uh, some say, well, it may mean that they won't be recognized by God uh, because they're going against what God says. But the bottom line is, is he's saying here that if they don't recognize that what Paul has said is the word of God, uh, they definitely can't be recognized as having the true gift because no matter what, no matter how gifted an individual may be naturally or with spiritual gifts, the uh, one of the great manifestations should always be is that person is in submission to what the Bible says. They're, they're always going to be submissive to what the Bible says. Not just what the Bible says doctrinally, but what the Bible also says as far as our behavior, about our attitudes. So, so the Bible knows nothing about the individual who is not accountable to anyone. The Bible knows nothing about an individual who is so gifted and let's say so intelligent that, they don't ha- that they're allowed to get away with certain behaviors. Okay, that's, that's not in the Bible. There's, there's always this connection, as it is for all believers, that we are together growing in our knowledge and understanding of doctrine and in our growing and understanding in the application of the Scripture, that we are becoming more like Jesus, that, we're, that we desire to become more like Christ and to live in obedience in that way or in submission to what the Bible says. And so again, if that person doesn't uh, a, a, a obey those principles and acknowledge these principles that Paul has given as the commandments of God, he is to be rejected as an individual. The word recognize, or the word ignorant, depending on how you uh, want to translate it, it means, in the Greek language, to ignore. Here, what I have read in, in uh, some of the books that deal with the language in particular, said that this is a third person singular present active indicative. What all that means is this is it's referring to voluntary ignorance, which is the result of unbelief and will bear its consequences. So remember that most of the time, when it comes to unbelief in the Bible, it is, it is normally not unbelief because the person is unable to believe because there's no evidence. It's not that. It is unbelief in the sense that it is a choice they make. They're choosing not to believe. They're choosing not to trust. They're choosing not to submit to what the Scripture says. So they don't believe it. And, and it may be that they really doubt that God's going to do this or do that. But again, it goes back to their heart. It's not because of something outside that's making them that way. All right? They're still fully responsible for their unbelief. So what's being communicated here is, in a sense, is a man is free to ignore these truths. But he's not free to choose the consequences of his willful ignorance. To ignore means not to allow something to occupy your mind. So Paul then does not lay the threat that this one will be ignored by the Lord. And as I said, some think that it goes in that direction. I don't think that it does. But basically, if you want to follow a different course than what God has prescribed, then you will at least appear to the world to be a maniac. He's already talked about that. The world, when they come to our services, and if there's all these people doing tongues, people are crazy. People are insane. And so you appear to the world as being a, a maniac. And you bring evil on the name of the Lord, and that is incalculable as to the damage it will do. In other words, you will give the impression that God is the author of confusion. And so you, you should be rejected. So what is the remedy to this? It's, a, it's very simple. It's in verses 39 and 40. What does Paul say? So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. He's been saying throughout chapter 14, that's the, that's the number one thing. The number one thing is prophecy because it is that which edifies the body. 
It's that which brings knowledge. Right? Knowledge precedes the ability to apply what the Word of God says, because you have to know what it says before you can apply it. It, it is that which is understandable. It is that which is intelligent. So what about tongues? Hey, it just gives a real simple thing. Eh, don't forbid speaking in tongues. Now, that doesn't mean that you just let everything just break loose. You go back to what is he? He's laid out the rules. What is tongues? The ability to speak in a language you haven't learned. What are the rules? Well, only two or three at the most. And only one at a time. And there has to be someone else to interpret. And if there's no one to interpret, be quiet, sit down. There you go. That's it. Then he caps it off with this general statement. All things should be done decently and in order. God doesn't want chaos when it comes to worship. In the same way that God created the world in an orderly way. You've, you've noticed how, how creation works. It's unbelievably orderly. Even with the curse of sin, how things work, you know? I now, growing up in Hawaii, I did this several times. It was marvelous. You ever fall asleep at night on the beach? This is really cool. Waves. You don't have to worry about the waves swallowing you up at night. Because we know from observation how far they'll come depending on the tides. God's world is orderly. So there's not going to be some you know, wave that's going to come, suddenly come and, and come get me. If there's a storm coming, I'll be able to tell by the size of the waves. And that time you don't sleep on the beach. You back up. Because you will be swallowed by a wave. All right, so it's, everything's orderly. Ships have been able to navigate around the world, even before men had, you know, engines in their boats, by looking at the stars. They could find their exact location, year after year, century after century, because it's all done that way. And so that's what God wants us to do. Why? Because it's what is most beneficial for us. Things being done orderly, we hear things that are intelligent, we can understand them, we can grow, we can learn, we worship God, we, it's beneficial to us, it's profitable, we move on. For those who are non-believers or uninformed, they come in and they're welcome to come and they will understand what's being said. They may not always like it. Some of it may be hard to understand because they're not spiritually attuned, but it will make sense to them. And if they reject it, they'll know what they're rejecting. If they accept it, they'll know what they're accepting. And the idea is, is that these things are done so because we don't want the world to think that we're maniacs. If they think that we're maniacs or insane, at least they should have to make it up. Just like the Bible says when it comes to being accused of being evil. Live your life in such a way that if the world says that you are guilty of evil, they've got to make it up. Because if you're suffering evil for the evil you've actually done, you're not suffering for the Lord. You deserve to suffer. And so it really is pretty simple. So once again, when we recognize these things that Paul is saying, it gives to us an understanding of how we ought to live our lives. It gives us an understanding of how we ought to conduct ourselves in worship. It tells us to be how, how, we, how we should conduct the worship service itself. But also, it helps us to have a proper way to be able to understand the world in which we live in. And to understand the confusion and where it comes from. And how things should be. How things ought to be. Because of what God has designed. There is no stumbling. There is no error. There is no confusion. It's pretty clear. There are times for all of us. We may not always like what the Bible says. The problem is not with God. It's always with us. And we ask God to help us, to change our hearts, to want to submit to what 
that God says. Because he says that if we do that, it is in that we will find the greatest happiness and joy. We will find contentment, whether we're living in times of trouble or in times of blessing. We will be content because we will know who we are. We will find our identity in Jesus Christ. We do not find our identity in our biological sex. And we don't find our identity in some made-up gender thing. All that comes from confusion and misunderstanding. But what brings us all home and brings us all back to a, basically a sane level and, and a satisfying level, a contented level of life, is living in the way that God has designed us. And thank goodness that God has given us the information we need to help us to understand so that we can experience life together, that we all may thrive until he comes again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, your love, your kindness. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, for how the truth is presented to us. That, Father, there is so much that is here, that no matter what it is that we are going through in life, your word truly does have something to say about every facet of life, whether it's directly or, in a sense, through the paradigm building that begins from the book of Genesis and carries all the way through the book of Revelation. We thank you, Lord, you've given us this truth. We thank you, Lord, you've given us the ability to think and to study and to learn. We thank you, Lord, for those that you've given to the church through the years who have studied and, and who have thought and have written and given us great information and enabled us, Father, to have a deeper and better and longer-lasting understanding of what the Word of God says. We thank you that we all have a copy of your Word ourselves, that we may check these things that we've been taught and that we may continue to learn ourselves and read directly from your mouth to our ears what it is, Lord, you want us to know. We pray, Lord, that we will indeed seek to find our greatest happiness and satisfaction in you and in your truth. We pray, Lord, then, that as we do that, that we'll take the time to enjoy the creation that you've placed us in, to enjoy the relationships that you've given us. Ultimately, Father, in the relationship that we have with you, our God, our Father, our Creator, we thank you so much for these things. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.